You take one step at a time, and you never give up. That's Helen Thayer's motto. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves is a special conversation with the woman that National Geographic calls one of the great explorers of the 20th century. Helen Thayer was the first woman to trek solo to the North and South Poles and to hike across the Sahara. She joins us today to describe how she and her husband, aided by two trusty camels, set yet another record by walking 1,600 miles across the Gobi Desert in Mongolia. Undeterred by blistering heat, stony terrain, trigger-happy smugglers and border patrols, or even the aches and pains of a 60-something body, Helen proves that with a little preparation and a determined spirit, you can reach whatever goal you set your mind to. We'd be the first man and woman to do this, but that really wasn't why we did it. It was because we had to experience the entire desert to live among those people and really learn everything we could. Helen Thayer shares her adventures in the Gobi Desert in just a moment on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. New vacation options in Latin America, plus getaways in the U.S., Europe, and the Caribbean are at aavacations.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Picture a 63-year-old woman and her 74-year-old husband taking a long hike with two camels for 1,600 miles across Mongolia's Gobi Desert. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Helen Thayer, who did exactly that. Helen, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Now, you've written this incredible book, Walking the Gobi, telling the story of you, your husband, Mm -hmm. Tom and Jerry. That's right. Your camels. Yes. And you spent, what, 80 days or something like this? 81 days. Walking across the Gobi Desert. What drove you to do that? Well, when I was 13 years old, I was born and raised in New Zealand. And when I was 13 years old, I heard uh, the teacher was talking about uh, this country, Mongolia, and China, and the Gobi Desert. By the time that uh, one-hour class was over, I was convinced that that's a place I had to go to. But, uh, and of course, I announced that at home. Back when you were 13 years old? Yes. So for 50 years, this idea germinated in your brain. But to start with 13-year-olds, do not walk across the Gobi Desert. So I realized I had to wait. But then the country was closed for 70 years due to communism. Right. So then it wasn't until 1990 when communism um, basically collapsed that Mongolia became a democracy. And then we were able to think about getting a permit because uh, it wasn't a matter of saying, oh, okay, the borders are open again. We can just walk across the desert. First of all, we had to get permission from the government because we had to be way down deep in the desert on the Chinese border. Now, this wasn't your first adventure. In fact, National Geographic named you one of the great explorers of the 20th century. So, in 2001, you decided, well, let's get it going for the next century, and <laughs> you right. embarked on what must have been your one of your ultimate trips. I mean, but you've kayaked the Amazon, you skied to the North Pole. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I'm the first woman to travel on foot solo to any of the world's poles. My goodness. So, well, let's talk about the, the Mongolian Gobi Desert. The subtitle of your book is, uh, it's the Desert of Hope and Despair. Why did you put that on the cover of the book? What does that mean, hope and despair? Well, it's really exactly that. There's a, it's a Buddhist community, and they're very, very optimistic, but they do go through some of the most awful winters called Zuds, Z-U-D. All that means is it's uh, just a horrific winter where the uh, snow is too deep or there has been a thaw and then a freeze, which cuts off all the food from the animals, and they can't pour the, the snow and ice off enough to get down to food, so they starve or they die of cold. And in one winter, Mongolia lost 3 million animals. Wow. And so that's so, the despair. That is the despair when because a, a nomad's wealth is measured by his the number of animals he has. Wow. And, and but there is the hope then of spring or but, something. But they they're always hopeful. Uh you can talk to a nomad and he's lost almost all of his animals. He hardly has any possessions anymore. He's so poor and um starvation is on the horizon, but he will tell you that next next summer will be a better year. Now, as far as hope and despair goes, I would imagine when you when you popped this on your husband, Bill, you say first, well, let's take a hike, and he's hopeful. And then you say, across the Gobi Desert, <laughs> then despair sets in. <laughs> what was his reaction when you said, Bill, let's hike across the Gobi? It's just 1,600 miles. Well, Bill is pretty much the same as I. He's a retired helicopter pilot. He's actually survived almost 13,000 hours in helicopters. Very, very dangerous job. Um, so he's an adventurer himself. And so he uh, he wasn't too surprised. No objections there. It was like, All okay, right. let's, let's see how we it. can do this. Yeah. Okay. Now, so let's talk about just the basic logistics before we get out into the sand dunes. I understand it was 80 days. You broke it up into four 20-day modules. That's the only way you can handle it emotionally. 
if you set out on um, day one, the first mile, and you know here's 1,600 miles and 81 days ahead, then that's too much for the and when you think of the temperature that lays ahead, the isolation, the deprivation that's going to go on and the possible dangers, it's best not to, we've discovered, not to think of the whole journey at once. Break it up into four pieces and then get to the first section and then go to the next one, then go to the next one, and pretty soon you've got it done. So after 20 days, you'd fly to a resort and hang out at a jacuzzi? Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> how, how did you punctuate the module? What a dream. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Yeah, the, module, about a mirage. <laughs> the module was just, hey, you know, we've survived the first 20 days and we're still trucking along and... Everybody's healthy, and uh, but you had to re- then you got restocked. Yes, and- we had to be resupplied. It's the only expedition we've ever been resupplied on. We believe that when you set a goal, you have to plan in absolute detail to be successful. And in, in many cases, our life depends on our planning. So, but early on in our planning, we realised that although we had walked four thousand miles across the Sahara Desert and walked throughout the American deserts, water would be a greater problem than any other place we'd been to. So why is water a greater problem in the Gobi than the Sahara? Well, the the, uh, Gobi Desert, the water tables are dropping. Ever since the mid-80s, the water tables have been dropping fairly rapidly. It's actually a desert, already a very dry place. It's drying out even more. But uh, unlike the Sahara, where you find oasis and date palms and so forth and people, there's nothing of that kind in the Gobi. No oasis. Just a, a Soviet dug well that might be dry? Well, no, not even those. Um, up in the very northern edge of the Gobi, you might find a few Soviet wells, but they were way, way north. Huh. Um, we were way south of that, right down the Chinese border. So you had border. The, the fear of not finding water. Exactly. Nagging yeah. you every day. Yeah, that's right. We had to always be careful of our water. We were very, very conscious of water all the time. And then we were drinking a gallon and a half a day. And so without water, you won't live 24 hours in that heat. Now, did you look at it like, when I'm thirsty, I'll drink? Or did you look at it scientifically, I need this much water and this much nutrition to survive? Yeah, it was the scientific aspect we took on because uh, you can't wait till you're thirsty because that might be too late. You have to say, okay, I know that in these temperatures, in these conditions, in in this activity, I need this amount of water a day to survive. You could derive that from the anticipated conditions. Mm -hmm. Talk about your, you had Chulu coming along in his airplane, right? Yeah, Chulu, yeah. Chulu. Mm-hmm. Yeah. T- tell me about how that helped you out. We actually were put in contact with him, and uh, he's a, absolutely a wonderful person. And he um, was a uh, very skillful small plane pilot. Mongolian? Yeah, Mongolian, yes. Man, could. that's just what I would want. If I'm hiking across the Gobi Desert, I want a good friend named Chulu in an airplane mm-hmm. from Mongolia. That's right. Keep an eye on me. That's right, yes. Well, what it's, his job was every 20 days to bring water in. And, of course, he was able to bring some food in as well. Every 20 days? Yeah, every 20 days. You literally had no contact with Chulu for 20 days? No, 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 not at you all. You had to carry everything on your poor camels? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. How did you keep Tom and Jerry happy? They were delighted with the whole lifestyle because um, Shalou would cut hay himself, put it into sacks and bring it in to make sure that they were well fed. We took great care of them because one of the biggest goals of this journey was that the two camels would need to come out at the other end in at least as good a condition as they went in. Did they? Oh, yes, very much so. Would Tom and Jerry agree with this? Oh, I'm sure they would. <laughs> All right. <laughs> They're yeah. living the life of, of just... Uh, oh, you know, we're living large. we got these soft Americans yep. taking us across the Gobi. And we've got right. Chulu dropping in some hay every yeah, three weeks. Yeah, that's right. Some nice, water. nice, nice, nice. <laughs> By the way, I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And I've never been in the Gobi Desert. And I've, I've, I'm sitting across from somebody who's spent 80 days hiking across it, 1,600 miles. Helen Thayer's written a book. It's out in paperback now called Walking the Gobi. If you want to learn more about Helen's adventures, she was named by National Geographic one of the great explorers of the 20th century. Her website is HelenThayer.com. H-E-L-E-N-T-H-A-Y-E-R.com. So, Helen, you said you had to wait until Mongolia was free. So the Soviet Union falls and Mongolia is free, but still it wasn't just a piece of cake to get permission. No, the government were very, very uh, reluctant to give us permission to start with. Um, they kept telling us, well, it has never been done before because nobody had walked the complete, the entire distance across the desert. And so it took a bit to persuade them that we could do it because they said, well, people have been out, found out there have died of thirst and then this and that and the other thing. And, they had to and you said, I'm just 63. My husband's <laughs> 74. I mean, get us a couple of good camels. And, it's no and that's problem. all we need. I'm a Kiwi. <laughs> After all, we're old <laughs> enough to do it now. <laughs> and you insisted on going east-west. They, they 
said people have gone north-south, which is much shorter, right? Well, that's a very short distance, maybe two or 300 miles, and you ah, can get it over and done stuff. with. But nobody had gone the full length. And we wanted – we'd be the first man and woman to do this, but that really wasn't why we did it. It was because we had to go into this desert, experience the entire desert – to live among those people and really learn everything we could to bring all of that information back out for Adventure Classroom, which is educational programs that we produce. Oh, so you did this as part of, of your Adventure, Adventure Classroom, classroom designed right. to inspire people to gain and an appreciation them, of the world. Uh, in order to teach uh, the geography, the history, uh, what this place looks like, feels like, smells like, mostly but also about those wonderful people who live there to instill intercultural respect. So you care about that? Oh, yes, very you just, much so. You just weren't trying to get into the Guinness Book of no, World no, Records. No, 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 we but... don't care about the Guinness Book of World Records. <laughs> Good. <laughs> we don't care if we get there or not. That's not, not what we're about. <laughs> so now you got the permission. Does that mean you had to carry a, a written paper that, that explained to bad guys that confronted you along the way that you're legal? Yes, that we had permission to be on the border and to be traveling uh, in the areas that we were, because we we're basically traveling in no man's land most of Along the time. Along the Chinese-Mongolian yes, border. Yes, where you're not supposed to be, uh, only the border patrol is allowed to go there. Did you have to pull out your papers very often to show security people? Yeah, we did uh, one time when we uh, found ourselves over the border in China. And we've been told before we started, you'll be shot if you, if you go over the border. And so we were very careful to stay in the right country because we had a lot of incentive to do so. Now, when you look at geographical phenomenon, a lot of times a ridge or a desert or a river will create a border. I noticed, coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally, that your hike was basically following the Chinese-Mongolian mm -hmm, border for mm -hmm. 1,600 miles. Mm -hmm. Is that because the border is created by the desert and you wanted to follow that because that was sort of the, the heart of the desert? No. The reason we were so deep, and well, down on the border, it would take us very, very deep into the desert. We didn't want to follow the easier path across the northern reaches of the desert where, uh, for instance, tourists can fly from the capital, Ulaanbaatar, right. down to Dalzalingard in an uh, uh, airplane that's loosely described as reliable. And they get off and they, they look at the city. They oh, have their little landlubber's desert Yes, experience. we're in the Gobi. But you wanted to do the serious desert and then yeah. happen to follow the that's border right. of China. And it's a very irregular border. border that has nothing to do with the geography of the, and the lay of the land. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're hiking across the Gobi Desert here with Helen Thayer, leading the way. Helen's written a book called Walking the Gobi. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Ken Hanley from Edinburgh in Scotland. Kamaraha, a coup de meal in the field. When translated, that means 
a very warm welcome. Uh, it's a very warm Scottish heartfelt. Have a, the best possible day you can have. And the crew of the meal in the field is uh, our Celtic wash with our Irish cousins, wishing you a hundred thousand welcomes and the warmest possible day. Kamaraha, a kid, a meal, a feel. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're in the desert. We're hiking across the Gobi Desert, at least in spirit, with Helen Thayer, who's written a book called Walking the Gobi. At the age of 63, Helen set out with her 74-year-old husband, Bill, and uh, Tom and Jerry, two trusty camels, hiked 1,600 miles in 80 days across the Gobi Desert along the border of Mongolia and China. Helen, your 63-year-old body, you've been hiking all day. You're thirsty. You're exhausted. You set up your tent. You lay down. What does it feel like? Well, to lay down and not have to take another step for a few hours was heaven. And just to take the boots off those hot feet was just an amazing, amazing sensation. But you realize I've got a few hours, to, I've got a quick meal to eat, I have a few hours of rest, and then we go out into that awful heat all over again, do another 18-hour day. So. But, but the cool of the night must have been a welcoming thing. The cool of the night was what brought us back to life in order to face another day. Maybe like a lot of the flora and fauna there anyways. Yes, deserts so habitually cooled down a lot at night. Yeah, did it get cold at night? Uh, quite cold. Um, when it was 126, it could, you know, 80, 85 degrees at night seemed very cool, cold to us. In fact, we had one warm garment each, and that was a fleece jacket, and that went on every night. What was the temperature at night generally? Um, well, um, in the end, when it was day temperature was over 120 degrees, it would be in the 80s. In the 80s, oh, mm. nice and refreshing. So when you got done... Did you have the same single set of boots the whole time? No, we were, on our, we were in the process of wearing out the third pair. Third pair. After a long day of hiking, did you take off the boots? Can you still feel wiggling your toes? Oh, it was wonderful just to wiggle those toes and just, just the coolness of that air on those feet was just wonderful. I love it. First of all, describe the desert to us because the image, you know, I mean the classic shot you got on the cover of your book is you and your husband, a lot of people walk dogs here you're walking camels. You got, you're holding the tether of the camel, and you're navigating these huge moguls, uh, sand dune mountains, walking along the ridges. Nothing but sand and, and shadows reminding of you how hot the sun is. Was the desert half that and half prairie, or was it all sand? No. The Gobi Desert, unlike the Sahara, is only 3% sand. Okay. Gobi really means stony desert. And that's what it is. You, you cross great, vast, wide-open plains of small stones. Um, other times, it's a sort of gritty plains. Was it kind of a hard tarmac sometimes? Yeah, yeah. Yes, it was. I've and been on the desert in Morocco, and it's mm-hmm. like paved tarmac. Yeah, in, in some ways, it's quite firm. But then we'd come to those hated sand dunes. We thought they were wonderful in the beginning, perfect for our cameras because we're both photographers, but boy, did we, did we learn to hate those things because you've got to climb up and over, sand is up over, over our ankles. The two camels that we were leading, no problem to them, but to us it was hot and it was miserable. So probably 3 to 5% of your hike was actually on sand. Then. Yeah, that's right. But and when we were on sand, it was hell. Did you actually get in the middle of a world of sand where you, everything around you was just sand dunes? Yes, in some places it was just all sand. Tell me about climbing a sand mountain or one of these dunes. Well, you try to find a place where you don't have to go to the summit of it. And uh, sort of like in mountains, it would be called a pass in the lower part, but nothing is very low on those things. And then you start going up and the sand starts slipping around like tiny avalanches all around you. And then the sand starts coming up and over your boots and in your feet, in, in your boots. And you're leading the two camels and they're fine going up. But if it's steep on the other side going down, they become very afraid because camels are not very agile and they can ah. break your leg going down steep places. Because a human might just glissade on their heels? Yeah, you can do that. But you can't because you've got your two... We had Tom, Tom and Jerry. And Jerry. We had Tom to get Jerry, them well, down. You can't glissade. we got no. four clumsy feet. And we, uh, and we don't want 1,500 pounds glissading on, down on top of you. So And they've got all your water and yeah. all your food, so and you then, want to take good care of that's Tom right. and Jerry. And so what, with a lot of bellowing and carrying <laughs> on, and finally we would persuade them to come on down. And after we got down over these things. It was like, you know, we'd, we'd been to hell and back on those places. You must have marveled at your spot on top of some of these sand dunes in the middle of the Gobi Desert. I remember being on the very ridge of a sand dune, starting little avalanches of sand and, and watching the patterns that it made mm-hmm. and, and looking at little insects. Take me extremely close up to a sand dune in the middle of the Gobi. Well, a sand dune is a 
vast, it's, it's a great sandy um, mountain, you might call it. As you approach it, of course, a tremendous amount of heat is reflected from it. Then you start the climbing and you do get these little tiny avalanches and make beautiful patterns. And at first, that's quite fascinating. You, oh, look at this and look at that little dung beetle and so forth. But after a while, you don't care about those. Get me off this dung thing. Dung beetles, sand avalanches, <laughs> get me back to the prairie, huh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. But there was no prairie in the in the Jacobi. It was all um, stony plains, a little bit, sometimes a bit rocky. And there's always that rocky mountain ridge we had to get over. You wrote quite evocatively about the blinding sandstorms. Tell mm. me about a sandstorm in the Gobi. Well, there's two kinds of sandstorms. There's just the ordinary one. It's sort of a blinding sandstorm. It's a dusty, sandy. Um, you have to put a mask and goggles on. But then there are the black days also, which are really, really very dangerous. They turn the light of midday into the light of midnight. It becomes totally black, and you're engulfed in this great black wall of black cloud and blowing sand and dust, but it's also full of thunder and lightning. Wow. And it's fork lightning. Frightening. Oh, it's terribly, because, well, you can die in those things. Did you just put up your tent? And, and no, 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 no. The, the winds are too strong. The winds are, well, 70, 80, 90 miles an hour, so you can't put the tent up, and the blowing sand would tend to shred it anyway. So all you can do is uh, sit the camels, and then we'd just crouch down low down behind them, and we just struck one of these particular storms, and you hang on to the tie-down rope so you're not blown away. But then you've got to survive the lightning that's striking all around you. And you look over at your 74-year-old husband. You say, Bill, this is the life. Aren't you glad we're together <laughs> on vacation in Asia? <laughs> well, we didn't think too much about vacation. We thought about survival. If we could get through this thing, <laughs> we could do anything. <laughs> now, now, tell me about I can't believe that it was actually chilly when it was 80, but I guess everything's relative. Tell me about the oven-like heat in the middle of the day. And you, oh. had, to, you had to work through the day. Did you take a siesta when it got really hot? No, no, because we didn't have time for that. One problem we had is that we had been through a car accident uh, previous to the expedition, and I was a bit slower on my feet as a result of a limp. So we couldn't take any siestas or any time off. We had to plod for it. We put in 18-hour days on an average. 18-hour days. That's why nobody would, would ever think of going with us. Can you imagine? At eight <laughs> hours, they'd want to quit, and we'd say, no, sorry, you've got another 10 to go. <laughs> so, I mean, to spend 18 hours, are you and Bill kind of just chatting, or are you sort of separated, and you each got your camel, and you're basically with Tom or Jerry? Mm -hmm. Well, we'd be together, one behind the other, sometimes side by side. And sometimes we'd sing songs. And Bill tells these one-line jokes. He has thousands of those, it seems. Well, we heard those over and over again, and we just purposely laughed at them. So it was the first some kind time. of a hell to have your husband yeah. talking the same joke over and over for 80 days <laughs> in the middle of the Gobi Desert. And he has lots of those, so that was entertaining. And then we'd, uh, when it was extremely hot, we'd talk about the time we were at minus 75 degrees up on the polar ice cap, and that seemed suddenly very attractive. And But that's strange. When we're at minus 75 on the polar ice cap, we think 126 in, in the desert is just quite wonderful. So it depends on where you are. It's all relative. It is relative. You actually, do you get used to the heat? No. No, so those sort of temperatures, because remember that's what's in the shade, but there is no shade in the Gobi. We did right. see about six trees toward the end, which were just wonderful things to see. Did you? Yeah, I bet, trees after you haven't seen them. Mm -hmm. Did you slather yourself in sunscreen, or did you get leathery and, and resistant to sunburn? We had UV-treated clothing. Okay. And we had shirts with long sleeves, and people find it hard to believe the smartest thing to do, which is why the the desert nomads are dressed head to toe, no skin exposed. You, we pulled our sleeves down yeah, that and is, had our shirts done up. counterintuitive, but yeah. you live in the desert. You do cover up. You don't you cover up in your keep, bathing suit. The main thing is to keep the sun off the skin. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Helen Thayer. She was declared by National Geographic one of the great explorers of the 20th century, kicked off the 21st century uh, at the age of 63 by hiking 1,600 miles across the Gobi Desert, and she's written a book to tell the story called Walking the Gobi. Helen, take me to the night in the middle of the desert. Cold, stars, the sounds. What's it like? Oh, it's beautiful. The deserts as a whole are beautiful places at night. The air is so clear. Um, there's no city lights to interfere with the sky. And the stars, sometimes you feel as though you can reach up and pluck them right out of the sky. It's the most amazing sight that you could ever see. Do you miss the stars now that you're back in the United States? Yeah, especially here where the stars are not terribly prolific. They're a lot more prolific and much more showy in other countries like New Zealand and, and the desert of Australia right. and those places. But A lot of people go through their lives and they never really see the Milky Way. 
No, no, they don't. Not really. No. And you've seen it in the Gobi. Oh yes, in many other parts of the world too. Did you see any natural phenomena? Because I always think how nomadic people or people from previous centuries would have been more in tune with the wonders of nature, shooting stars, aurora borealis, and so on. Did you see any natural wonders that you wouldn't normally see? Of course, the northern lights, southern lights, they're only at the higher latitudes. In the Gobi, you don't see that. Um, You see uh, the moon sometimes is blood red because of the dust. If there's been a dust storm fairly recently, the moon can be just a, a blood red. So a big, it's full amazing. blood red Oh, it's a gorgeous thing. It's an wow. amazing thing to see. In a black sky with bright yes. stars. And the wolves howling. It's just amazing. It's an amazing thing to be out there and just be truly with nature to where it's just you and the natural world and you're not uh, inundated with artificial things. Well, that sounds great to be immersed in nature, but were you following a track, or, or how did you navigate? No tracks in the Gobi. It's all um, we had satellite images, uh, and we had so air you had charts GPS. and GPS compasses, but air charts, satellite image maps, because we needed to be able to read ahead um, the ridges, because we didn't want to walk ourselves into a place we'd have to back out. So you of. had adequate maps that showed these ridges. Yes, the satellite image. Uh, maps these days are really, wow. really great. And then, I'm, I don't quite understand it, but your GPS told you exactly where you were so you could almost look at, like, Google Earth and yes. see where you're going. The uh, GPS tells you where you are. Right. But then, of course, we've got to go somewhere. Right. So we had to navigate with our compass and uh, huh. um, just the maps, the contour lines on the maps. We have to read them, constantly reading maps. You probably got pretty good at that. Well, we have over the years. It's you and just your a, husband and Tom and Jerry, everyone yeah. from all say, hey, let's just pause here, get the map out. And read our map. We consult Tom and Jerry, of course, <laughs> over those matters. <laughs> Did you gain any respect for your camels over this experience? Oh, we loved them. They were part of us. We were a four-person team, and Tom and Jerry were two of those people. Did they have personalities? Yes. Did you have to take good care of them, or they got ornery? Did they ever go on strike? Um, well, the Bactrian camels of the uh, Gobi are better treated than the um, other camels that we met in the Sahara. So these fellows, uh, once they decided that we weren't going to do anything nasty to them, that we were just ordinary human beings, they were just fine. So you won their trust? Yes. Tom was the serious leader, and Jerry was the clown. And did you and Bill... Like each of you owned one of the camels as far as who you're with? or did No, you... we just took turns because we wanted them to bond with both of us, not just one person. Did you prefer one over the other? Um, no, not really. Uh, they had such different personalities. They were people to us, and uh, we just loved them. So tell me, how, how how would it be people? Would you clown around with each other? Did they respond yeah, you? Yeah, you know, yes, because when it came to begging time, they'd come up and nibble our necks and our ears and, and, and the shirt collars, and, and they were just quite mischievous. And when they started to beg, it was just merciless. We'd have to go stake them out because they would want our dinner. And uh, they had that sort of persistent... Um, Sort of just innocent animal ways. Uh, just a playfulness? So, yes, yes. A loyalty? Yes, I think you really could say that they were loyal to us at the end, which people can't believe that about camels. The reputation of camels are nasty, cantankerous. They get a bad rap, don't they? Oh, terrible. But then, of course, the camels in the Sahara, they are that way, but that's because they're treated like that by humans. Ah, so the camel provides the same sort of service to people in the desert in the Sahara or the Gobi. Yes. Mm-hmm. But they're, you think they're really fundamentally treated with more respect in the Gobi, so they are oh, more on the team. Infinitely so. There's no respect given to a camel in the Sahara. It's a very cruel life in the Sahara. So Tom and Jerry were probably thankful that they were in the Gobi. Oh, yes, yes. They have two humps. They're the Bactrian yeah. camels. The Gobi's the only place that they live. And the wild Bactrian is actually a very endangered species. Did you ever actually ride them? No. We did have one huge emergency, and it was impossible for me to ride. And we knew that before we left. So that wasn't an ace in the hole if you needed an no, emergency we knew that transport? If you were able to get, get on yourself it. onto the camel and sort of stride in some fashion, they could have done that. But we knew before we left that that, that was not an option because of my... Uh, leg. And so we had to just simply plan very well that that would not happen. So you walked with the camels for yes, 1,600 miles. Mm-hmm. One time I read that Jerry got away and he actually ran into China. <laughs> Tell me about that. <laughs> well, he, he uh, we had them staked out because we were right on the border and we didn't want them wandering off because then we, we would hobble them at night uh, so they couldn't travel too far. And well, they could walk in their hobbles over the border. Well, that wouldn't be good. But that morning, uh, we woke up and looked out the tent door, and whoops, there's only one camel, and Jerry is off. We look about half a mile south, and there is Jerry 
And so now we're in a quandary because we'd already been uh, caught in China once and we're not shot. So he was just looking for breakfast. Yeah, that's all. He was totally innocent. And there was a, a nice little uh, patch, mm -hmm. of, patch of grass down chopping there. chopping on a sort of a sage-like, it wasn't sage, but a, that dry bush. And so now we thought, well, if we leave him, he will die out here. And we couldn't do that because he was part of us. And you had to determine, would you zip across the border? And that's dangerous for you, actually. Very dangerous because if we'd be caught, we could be shot. What a tough decision. Well, there was no other decision to make but to go after him. And because you did. cared about Jerry? Well, of course. That is so sweet. We couldn't live with the rest of us. We couldn't not come home knowing we'd left a camel to die out there. We couldn't do that. And Tom would have to carry twice as much stuff. Yeah, but the big thing is you've left us. <laughs> you've, you've left your, your trusty camel. It. You know, you just couldn't oh, do it. Oh, my goodness. When you're in the desert or when you watch cartoons or movies about the desert, you hear about mirages. Did you ever see a mirage? Oh, lots of them. And it's not because of your mentally incapacitated. It's because it's the, it's the heat and the heat waves and the reflection that causes these things. And so you can be quite sensible knowing what you're doing, but you see, uh, oh, we saw um, palm trees, lots of lakes. So you knew they were mirages and you oh, just yes. enjoyed the beauty of it. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So weren't, you weren't imagining no, no. like a fountain because you were thirsty. No, no, nothing like that. We never did get to that. Um, so it's just the light on the horizon. It's, it's caused by the reflection and the heat and reflection, the refraction of light. Well, there could be conditions where you might hallucinate, but we were never into that situation. But you'd see them all the time, and it's just because of the uh, refraction and reflection and, and all that sort of thing with light. On your trip, were you impressed by the abundance of life or the lack of life in the middle of the stark desert? Well, you know, as we went on, we, we began to notice every tiny, minuscule thing. Um, every little creature, little lizards and uh, scorpions and uh, snakes and these sorts of things, uh, there weren't really, when you think about it, there really weren't many of them, but we, we noticed. So we don't take music with us. We're not reading. We're not uh, playing music in our ears as we go. We're really with nature, and you really notice all the tiny, like the little different colored pebble over there. You, normally you'd walk away from it and you wouldn't see it, but we noticed everything. Your, your senses become extremely heightened when you allow yourself to be with nature like that. So you, as a matter of principle, didn't bring music no. or even reading. You no. wanted to be one with nature. That's exactly right, yes. And in retrospect, after 80 days out in the Gobi, was that a good call? A, a very, very good call because when we're immersed in nature, we become one with it and we're ready for any emergency. We come back having known the place in the most intimate detail. We feel it and forever we will always have the feel of that desert with us. That's a probably a, a very important decision and, and richly rewarding decision that a lot of people would not even realize. Now, a lot of people on expeditions to various parts of the world, they'll have they'll music. Because and, they got their music with them and their yeah, guitars. And, and, and if we want to hear music, we'll stay home. But we go to the desert to see the desert. Send us an email with your thoughts and comments about Mongolia on desert trekking and on our astounding guest, Helen Thayer. The address is radio at ricksteves.com and our phone number is 877-333-RICK. It's Travel with Rick Steves and our special guest, adventure travel legend Helen Thayer. Her latest book, Walking the Gobi, is published by Mountaineers Books. And her website is Helen Thayer. That's T-H-A-Y-E-R dot com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined uh, by Helen Thayer, who drove to our studio today but she walked across the Gobi Desert 1,600 miles at the age of 63 with her 74-year-old husband and trusty Tom and Jerry, their two camels. We got Travis on the line in Norman, Oklahoma. Travis, thank you for your call. You got a question or a comment for Helen here? How was it uh, physically possible to cross the desert like that? Did you do any type of exercises to prepare for? Well, we are both athletes. Um, we work out in our in our basement gym, lifting weights, and we stretch every day. We also um, climb mountains. We live in the Cascade Mountains of Washington State, and so we climb, we hike, um, we train all the time. Then we try to finish our training off at the specific place we're going to. Um, we always train for starvation and dehydration. In the mountains, we don't eat dinner the night before, nor do we drink, nor do we have breakfast or anything to drink for at breakfast. And we start off in the mountains with heavy packs full of food and fluid at daybreak. And then we have a 26-mile trek that we do in the Cascades. It's, we gain 4,000 feet in and we gain 4,000 feet coming out by another route. 
and we don't eat or drink at all on that journey until we're absolutely forced to. What does that accomplish? Uh, it teaches our bodies how far we can um, take as a starvation. What is it like? We need to know what is it like to be starving with no food? What is it like to be uh, our body to go into dehydration? And we need to know how far we can push that. Does it stop Bill from telling those jokes? No. <laughs> is that your real no. motive? <laughs> no. <laughs> he still tells his jokes. Even with parched lips. <laughs> yeah. Although I must say at one point they were getting pretty, uh, pretty far between. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Travis, any other thoughts or, or, or questions for Helen? Was there any fears of crossing the desert like that? Well, there is always a certain amount of fear when we go on any of these extreme journeys because there's always the fear that is there something I haven't planned for, something I haven't figured out. Well, you yes. had the smugglers. I was. I did yeah, your whole yes. chapter dedicated to smugglers. We were, we were very afraid of those smugglers because um, they're desperate people. Would and they just they, shoot first and ask questions yeah, later? Yeah, exactly. Well, idea? they shoot and get rid of you so you don't report them. So we were very afraid Are of these meeting them. Mongolians or Chinese? Um, both. What are they smuggling? Uh, drugs and gold. Drugs and gold mm-hmm. between China and Mongolia. Yes. Mm-hmm. Do they move around after dark? Yes, mostly because uh, part of our plan was when the temperatures got over 115 degrees, we would then start walking at night because obviously it's, it's so, and we can navigate, okay, but usually there's a moon right. and so forth. But uh, we met smugglers and we were almost found by them, seen by them. So they never really found you? No, no, not, not that lot. And, we and you were, think you would have been shot? Poss- they probably would have done. They're, they're really desperate people. And so we were very wow. afraid of those people. So that's why we didn't walk at night anymore. That was actually the biggest risk for you then. You yes. Mm-hmm. All right, Travis, thanks for your call. Well, thank you, Rick, and appreciate the many years of wonderful television. Well, we hope to talk to you again, and uh, I'm just, this is so inspiring to me to, to hear Helen Thayer talking about the Govi. So, Travis from Very Oklahoma, amazing. keep on traveling. Thanks again for your call. Thanks a lot, Rick. Helen, part of the experience was getting to know the nomads of Mongolia. You mentioned half of the three million Mongolian people actually live in tents. Yes, they uh, live in uh, what they call gears, which are like the Russian yurts, are probably more commonly known as a yurt. In Mongolian, it's gear, G-E-R. And they're, oh, the average one would be about 12 feet in diameter, and they're round, sort of a dome shape, semi-dome shape. So by living in tents, does that mean their economy is herds, that they have to move to follow the grass? Yes, they're nomads. Almost by definition, a nomad would be people that have animals that they need to... And they move from place to place. For grazing purposes. Yes, and from spring to fall, they move uh, about about three or four times to new water, new pasture. Now, you dedicated your book in part to the nomads mm-hmm. because you must have been very favorably impressed well, by them. Well, they're amazing this. people. Just grew to love them. Now, have you gained an empathy or a sensitivity for the plight of nomads in general on the planet today? Yes, because uh, there's a very difficult lifestyle and just a little bit has to go wrong and they don't survive. But they're always there. They they know what they're doing. But they're sort of in the wrong time because governments across the world want people to settle down. They want their kids to go to the national schools to learn the national language. Mm -hmm. They want to make fences so cattle can't roam from one Mm -hmm. part of land to the other. Everything is stacked against nomads in the 21st century. And we think that's one of the great shames of uh, what we call civilization. Yeah. We really believe that after living among these people and other indigenous cultures that if only uh, the Caucasian race could have left these people alone to live the life that they want to live and perhaps help them out with medicine. Um, but then they usually have medicine all they want in the jungle. We found plenty of medicine sure. in the jungle. They don't need us for that. And so they don't really... if. It's a shame to see cultures go away because they're so rich and have so... We really feel when we go among these people, we have nothing to teach them, but they have everything to teach us. Isn't that a powerful lesson? I think one of the tragedies of our time is the plight of nomadic civilizations. And Mm -hmm. I know from my time in eastern Turkey, the nomads exasperate the Turkish government. And the Turkish government builds them homes and builds them schools. And the nomadic people, because they love their way of life and they have a vision for their children, Mm. they don't want to accept that free housing and free education. They want to live in their tents, they want to stay with their flocks, Mm -hmm. and they want to live their traditional lifestyles. And they're really, I think they're doomed, actually. I think so, because we don't seem to want to leave them alone. And they seem to, uh, it seems as though we have to... uh, uh, so-called civilization seems to think that they have to change these people because our way is better than theirs, which is not so. You came across nomads fairly routinely on your hike? That's right. 
And what did they think when they saw you? I mean, an <laughs> unlikely couple. <laughs> They'd take a look at us, and they're very polite people. They're wonderful, but they couldn't understand why we'd be walking. We were very quickly told that walking across the desert was crazy, and they only walk when the horse drops dead, we were very quickly told. And we tried to explain to them, well, we're, we're doing this trek for Adventure Classroom to educate children in America about your lifestyle. Well, that just drew blank stares. Again, very polite people, but it was pretty obvious that they very thought... Very polite. <laughs> They're probably looking at you like you're loony, yeah, but they, they still want to be thought, polite. Yeah, very polite, but I obviously thought they'd come across people who were quite uh, suffering from dementia or something terrible like that. When you finally finished your hike... I would imagine it was big news in Mongolia. Was it like national news? Uh, I don't know. We never checked on that. We were so busy in our own little world. And when you're in, out there, we're sort of in our own world. Uh, yeah. what, what the rest of the world is doing, because we get no news of the outside. And, and, and we're and totally were... immersed in what we're doing there. And the outside world and what they think doesn't matter. So the, the howl of the wolves and the little spiders and mm -hmm. the, red, the blood red moon and the, the worry about the uh, mm -hmm. smugglers and mm -hmm. keeping Tom and Jerry happy. That's right. Keeping enough water in your body. How did the nomads show hospitality to you? Well, the first thing, when you go into a gear, all gears are created equal, you must not knock. It's considered to be very rude. So you have to brace yourself and steel yourself to walk in without knocking. Once in the... Barge um, right into their domestic <clears throat> world. You, yeah, that's all you do. It's just awful. <laughs> and we never did get used to that. Um, and the, But you go in and you're totally accepted because you can imagine that they must have been terribly surprised. Here are two Caucasian people. The thing that was so to our huge advantage and is an advantage to us in most indigenous cultures is our age. Because we are seniors, we are afforded a great deal of respect. And uh, we can get away with a lot. We can make mistakes, but we get away with it because we're older. If we were in our 20s or 30s, it'd be not quite so good, but age is a huge advantage for us. Is that a bigger deal in other cultures by your experience, is respect for seniors? Yes, or, or very definitely. It's quite interesting to come home and feel the, the, quite the opposite. Whereas you go in among these cultures, um, they treat you with great respect. You're able to make more mistakes and still be respected. It's very nice just to see the young children respect you tremendously. So it's just a nice feeling. In Central America, they have a thing called like mi casa su casa. My house is your house. Yes. And I've always thought People who live in poor societies operate from a mindset of abundance, while we who live in the most amazingly affluent world operate with a mindset of scarcity. That's right. Did you find that kind of generosity with the nomads? Oh, a huge generosity. The moment you, no matter how poor the people are, perhaps they've lost a lot of animals the previous winter, they will offer you food and uh, tea and, and food and drink immediately. You know, if it was their last, they would give it to you. Now, when you were living for 80 days in Mongolia, did you have to completely adjust to the food, or how did your body react to the food? Well, um, it was most interesting it's because... It's tough to say, oh, no thanks, that looks gross, when you meet nomads no, 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 in the middle of nowhere. You no, have to you eat can't, it. You, you can't do that because that's very rude. Yeah. Uh, that's a terrible insult. Um, you really have to at least eat and drink some. We did have our basic supplies with us, but when we came to nomad gear, we would be invited in to eat with them we were actually eating unpasteurized dairy products and unrefrigerated meat right out products. Right yak or something? And it was, yes, yeah, so we, we were just amazed that we didn't die of uh, food poisoning of some kind, but we just got along fine. But You really some, never were hiking across the Gobi with diarrhea? Uh, no, no, not with diarrhea, no, but we did get sick in our stomach. We had to eat three breakfasts one morning because we had to go from one gear to another to be polite. We just about oh, we thought we were going to die. And then there's a half-rotten mutton little pieces of that are cut off this slab of mutton that's hanging in the doorway. Half rotten intentionally? Yeah, yes. And it's left to really, really ripen. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and uh, we thought that was that Tasty. was amazing to get that no, down. No barbecue sauce to... Uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so did you look at food as just sustenance and survival? Did you ever look forward to the food from a taste point of view? Well, when we're on these expeditions, we can't afford to start looking forward to that great meal yeah. um, that we're not getting. Um, we have to go with the flow, so to speak. Otherwise, if you're continually thinking about what you don't have, you're not going to be successful. So you get along and deal with what you do have. Again, it's that scientific approach to what do I need to nourish myself? That's right. And That's all you need. how much liquid do I need? If food becomes a means of sustenance. surviving and sustenance, right. so you can put one foot in front of the other. Tell me about water. Did you get sludgy water that you had to purify, or did you find 
pristine streams that you could fill up your canteen. <laughs> pristine streams, what a dream. <laughs> <laughs> There's another, that's a mirage, isn't it? That was a mirage right there, that's for sure. Pristine streams, no, we never saw anything even resembling that. We did come to one point where it was we were rather desperate and we had to filter water out of a filthy pond, which was in the process of drying. It was salty and filthy, but we had a desalinization unit with us and we uh, got salt out of it and the bugs out of it enough to so that is effective. You could take any liquid and mm-hmm. distill yes. water out of it with yes, your Yes, we were, we were equipped for that. You could take Tom and Jerry urine if you really had to. Oh, if we had to, we would have. We didn't have to. Get, we didn't get to that. Was that a scenario? <laughs> Actually, we never did that. We never gave it any thought. Really, never thought like, about that. No, because somehow we had to figure that there was always water. When when we were out of water, we had to figure there was water ahead of us, and it always was. Eventually. <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Helen Thayer, who uh, is quite an adventurer. And at the age of 63, she decided to start off this new century by grabbing her husband, who was just 11 years older, and hiking 1,600 miles across the uh, Mongolian Gobi Desert. And she wrote a book to tell the story, a fascinating book, called Walking the Gobi. Helen, the book is so vivid. As I read it, what was your process in writing the book? Did you did you have a discipline of taking notes as you went, knowing you'd write this book? Yes, I, I like to write, and so does Bill. We write a lot of notes as we go. And our maps, of course, we've got notes all over them. I'm very fortunate that I have one of these memories that I can go back and I can write about an adventure as though I just completed it. It stays with, I won't remember your name. I'll have to ask your name six times. You'll give up on me. But um, I can remember scenarios, places, colors, and sensations. That, that scorpion <laughs> on your boot. Now, when you were on this trip, water was at a premium, very rare. Mm-hmm. Tell me about hygiene. You'd hike for 14 hours in 120-degree weather. You must have been a sweaty mess. And then you had to go to bed without showering? Well, um, you know, when you're on these journeys, you have to deal with what you have to deal with. But at these temperatures, you don't have sweat. For instance, we just got back from the Amazon, and the sweat just pours off you all the time. Here in the desert, it doesn't. It comes to the surface, and it's immediately evaporated. Ah. So, But you do get a layer of salt in your clothing and your skin. Um, How often did you shower or wash? uh, Shower? Well, we never showered because there was no shower around. Sponge bath? Uh, If we came to a well in a village, we would pour buckets of water over each other. But we dare not use our precious drinking and cooking water because we also had to make sure Jerry had and Tom had water. And so we we just didn't worry about that because we had to survive. And in order to survive, we had to have enough water to put into our bodies. So you had a priority. That's right. And and you can survive without a shower. That's not going to kill you if you go without a shower. Did you brush your teeth? Oh, yes, we did brush our teeth. We insisted on that. (laughs) (laughs) But very tiny bit of water. Very little bit of water. Sometimes it was a dry brush, you know. And when you made your bed at night, did you have a mattress? Did you just lay directly on the prairie? The, no, the we desert? we had a, a thin, like it's about a half inch thick foam pad underneath okay. the sleeping bag, and that was it. And after hiking all day, were you so exhausted that you always slept well? Or? Yeah, we did sleep very well. So yes. you, you felt like ah, my precious yes. bed. But sometimes that would get so hot that it was hard. But uh, you find that if we were becoming dehydrated and your temperature mechanism is going down, then it's hard. What does the heat do to your energy and your appetite? Well, your appetite goes away. Um, energy is really flagging. By midday, you feel as though you can hardly breathe that air. And we'd sit under our umbrellas and try to have a break at lunchtime, but it was almost felt like sometimes too hot to breathe. It was just like being in an oven with no off switch. Did you ever have a tough time just getting started after lunch again and yes. trudging another six hours through the heat? Yeah, we, we made sure we didn't stop too long at lunchtime. One we didn't really have a lunch. after the other for 1,600 mm-hmm. miles. Did you get a psychological low? Were you ever in danger of calling Chumu or whoever your friend was and say, get us out of here? No, we never thought of doing that. Um, once you start doing that, you're in trouble. Uh, no, we never thought of doing that. What, what we do is when it's really tough, we start visualizing ourselves at the end of the journey, having completed it, can see ourselves standing victorious, having taken the last step. That tends to pull us on like a magnet rather than thinking the negative, oh gosh, I'm having a terrible time, this and this and this. That's so negative, you might stop. So you must be positive. Your book tells a great story about how you had a setback and you had to hike another 80 miles or oh, something yeah. than what you thought when you were psychologically ready to finish yes. it off. So I can imagine you had to dig really deep in down for your energy and your spirit That's to right. do that. And you finally reached the end of your hike and you and Bill looked at each other and in unison you said, we'll be back. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Well, we knew we we'll would be. We'll be back. <laughs> well, we had to be because 
for two reasons. One, number one, um, we wanted to go back and see Tom and Jerry, which we did, and then we wanted to visit with these people so again. So you went back five years later. Yes. Mm-hmm. What was it like seeing your favorite camels, Tom and Jerry? Oh, it was wonderful. They knew us immediately. How did you know they knew you? Because they came to us with those funny little mewling sort of sounds that they made, and they knew us right away. But it was wonderful. They were in wonderful condition. They never worked another day after we handed them back to their owners. They so, never worked another no, day? they've they been were, taken total care of. They were celebrity camels. Absolutely. They were a status symbol to that family. Wow. And so they wonderfully fed, even have veterinary care, because their home is actually closer to the capital. Now, you did this trip uh, when you were 63 years old. What's next for Helen Thayer? We just got back from um, kayaking a 1,000 miles in the Amazon. And now in February and March, we're actually going to be walking 1,500 miles from Nevada down through the high desert then through Death Valley and Mojave and the Sonoran Deserts. Then we're off to Bhutan to hike throughout Bhutan. We've been able to get visas to allow us to go without go because we don't do guides and so forth and they have a special visa because of adventure classroom and that adventure, we can do that. people can learn about adventure classroom at helenthayer.com yes and just click on adventure classroom it'll take you right there that's great travel must be your fountain of youth yes i, I guess it is yeah, yeah looking at your smile right now i see <laughs> travel is the fountain of youth oh for yes Helen we, we like to go see what other people are doing we like to see how other people live and what they're doing and what we can learn from them. Feeling your energy and seeing your smile, it's, uh, it's <laughs> quite credible. Thank you very much for sharing your adventure with us. It's been my pleasure. The history of life. As we all walk through life. As a nomad. A lone child. Walking, running. Going across the desert sands. with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online, including listener feedback and archived audio on demand. It's in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. Join us again next time for Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. Their Advantage program can help you earn miles toward your next vacation. Details are at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.